0: Psalm 14, let's hear from God's Holy Word, for the director of music of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn, those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Beginning with question 14 of the shorter catechism on page 870, the back of the red hymnal, let's uh, read the answers together and we'll go through question 19. Question 14. What is sin? Sin is in any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Psalm 14 is used by the Apostle Paul to explain or to give a biblical case from the Old Testament about the universality of original sin, of sinfulness, of our culpability before God, we'll focus more on that first part of the psalm where the Lord is looking down from heaven uh, to to see whether there are any who would seek God, there are any who would be called righteous. The psalm in the the second half does speak of God dwelling in the company of the righteous. And sometimes when we read the psalms, we're confused about what to do with that. Because there are oftentimes uh, the psalmist calls upon God uh, to slay the wicked, to destroy the wicked. Those who seek him, often it's David speaking or someone else, vindicate uh, the, the name of God's anointed king as wicked men rush upon him. And of course, we understand that we all are sinners, and so sometimes we're not quite not quite sure what to do with that. And one of the things that we do with that, when that we come up in the Psalms or that comes up in the Psalms, is we understand that uh, certainly there's a universality of human sinfulness, and yet those who take refuge in God, those who hope in Him, those who hope in His mercy and His grace, of course, we understand that God forgives sin and he washes sin away and he welcomes sinners into communion with him. And one of the prayers that we ought to be praying over and over and over again in our life is that uh, that God would eliminate wickedness and evil from this world and that it would begin in us that he would eliminate the evil within our hearts because we know that ultimately We are not perfect, and yet we are numbered amongst the people of God, and that creates a distinction between those in this world who are known as those who have joined themselves to the God of the Bible and those who have not. And So Psalm 14 speaks more of that in the second half. We'll focus mostly on the first half tonight, though we will speak certainly of the salvation in Christ later on. As we went through the book of Judges over this past year, one thing that was impressed upon me and probably upon all of us was the depravity of the human heart, the human sinfulness. That's one of the the things about judges. It's it's given to us to almost shock us with that reality of human sinfulness. Just when you think it it can't get worse, it devolves even further. Uh, Our sins are not, sometimes we, we domesticate our sins. We try to Think about them as the, our worst sins are all you know, socially accepted faux pas. They're things that aren't really that big of a deal. But our sin is a serious offense towards God. And Satan wants us to see our sin in a domesticated way. Something that is somewhat regrettable. Uh, maybe not all that nice or pretty. But uh, not really that big of a deal. I've always been fascinated by people who have these exotic pets in their home, You know, snakes or rats or ferrets. These are things that are not made to be home pets. And I think what makes it kind of an exciting thing for people is that very, that's the very reason why people want it, because you wouldn't necessarily think that you should have a snake for a pet. A snake doesn't you know, become your friend, or a rat doesn't become your friend, at least the way that I understand it. You know, a dog, that becomes your loyal and faithful friend. It's not the same thing with some of these more exotic pets. I was thinking about that, and that's kind of like the way Satan wants us to think about sin. It doesn't quite fit in your life, but if you can kind of keep it glassed up, cased up, and just keep it in the right place, then it's not really going to be that big of an issue. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to bite you. But sin is much more dangerous and much more powerful than that. And it has affected us in much deeper ways. And sin is not just that we're a little bit messed up. We got a couple of things that are wrong with us. No, sin is a serious problem. So the goal for us is to strike the balance of knowing the seriousness of our sin and our misery... and not allowing that to drive us to such a a pit of despair... that we don't understand the hope that we have in Christ... and to, to, to not forget to look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal wrote about this centuries ago when he said... the man who knows God but does not know his own misery... Becomes proud. We seek to know God, but if we if we don't have a a serious take a serious look at our sinfulness, we will inevitably become proud. He went on. The man who knows his own misery but does not know God ends in despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes the middle course, because in Him we find both God and our own misery. Jesus Christ is therefore a God whom we approach without pride and before whom. We humble ourselves without despair. Beautiful. A God we approach without pride and before whom we humble ourselves without despair. The first thing uh, in our our lesson tonight is that sin is undeniable. Our sin and our sinfulness is something that we cannot deny. There are so many different ways that we can prove it and we'll look at uh, several of them. We are sinful by virtue of the fall. And we've looked at the fall in recent weeks. Because of the fall, we are a sinful race. Augustine said all of us sinned in Adam because we were part of Adam. People who who do not see human beings as conceived and born in sin, that would be, at least partially, the historical heresy called Pelagianism. It would say, basically, everyone's kind of born with a blank slate And it just kind of depends on whether you go towards righteousness or whether you go towards sin. The Reformed tradition and the Protestant tradition, of course, has always held, and really every Western Christian since Augustine has held, that there is a universality to our sinfulness. We inherit the corruption of the fall and we inherit the sin of the fall. One of the biggest problems, as I see it, with something like Pelagianism is that it makes God look like a, a, a bad creator, an incompetent creator. As they would say, well, everyone's sort of born with a blank slate, but we all know from human experience that everyone sins, everyone messes up. Uh, there are things about us that just go wrong in our lives. And so if you hold that we're not born or conceived into sin and born as sinners and fallen... And yet every single person at some point kind of falls into this category of sinner and sinful, then it actually becomes something that reflects poorly upon God as our creator. If someone calls himself an inventor and he never invents anything or he never makes anything that actually works, what would we think of his work? If nothing actually works, what would that say about what he does? Adam's sin from the fall is given to us by imputation. It's imputed to us. Adam sinned as our representative. God made a covenant with him, and Adam was the representative of all the human race. And so his mistake becomes ours. In one of the first American printed uh, primers of the English language teaching young children English, going through the alphabet, uh, A, the lesson was, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Some people react to that and say, well, it's not fair. I personally was not in the Garden of Eden, and I did not take of the tree that God commanded us from which to not eat. And so, it's not fair. If that is one way that we are tempted to think, we should at least reflect on the way that God has made the world. Sometimes we like to think of everything in our life as sort of an individual meritocracy, but that's not the way that life works. Everyone is born into circumstances that were brought about by many people, many generations before us, in a familial sense and in a societal sense. Right? All of us benefit from From the kinds of decisions that were made in America generations before we were born, the kinds of courage that was shown on the battlefield, the kinds of decisions that were made in diplomacy or economic development. We all benefit from that. Many people who come from a a rich family tradition, there are things you are born into circumstantially that are great blessings. And, and nobody can look at their life and say that the things that they have and the things that they have experienced are purely on a uh, the basis of their own merit. We're born into a community that our families chose. We are born into a world where ingenuity and development created conditions for the quality of life. We are born into a world where people are taught about modernism and postmodernism and all kinds of worldviews, competing worldviews, and we we bear the marks of that as well. Ultimately, if you say that it's not fair that Adam's sin is imputed to us, that that is given to us, reckoned to our account, would you then also have to say that it's not fair that Christ's righteousness, that his obedience, that his... Salvation would be granted to us by faith because that's what happens in the gospel. We have the work of another that is freely given to us and reckoned to our account. But that sin of Adam's first transgression is imputed to us and the result, as we read in the catechism, is that we have lost that original righteousness. Remember, Adam was created not neutral. He was created morally upright. He was pleasing to God. He wasn't in an unchangeable state, but who he was, was pleasing to God, for he was righteous. And so, now fallen and sinful, that doesn't bring us back into being neutral. We are now displeasing to God. We lack righteousness, and we have unrighteousness. Naturally, we have an aversion to the good. Thomas Watson says this, Man has a desire to be happy, but he opposes that which should promote his happiness. He has a disgust of holiness. He hates to be reformed, that's to be changed. Since we fell from God, we have no mind to return to him. We have an aversion to the good, and we have a propensity to evil and to sin. To go back to the Pelagian era, if the world or if human beings were, as Pelagians would say, why aren't there more people who end up righteous in their life, who live a perfect life? Of course, we know from our experience that that's not how it goes. So we inherit that sin from Adam. We lose that original righteousness, but we also have something deeper, and that is we are corrupted There's a corruption that has now seeped into who we are, and that affects the way that we live. Psalm 14 says that we are spoiled. Together we have become corrupt. Verse 1, there the word for corrupt speaks of a, a blemished animal or a morally polluted person, the kind of Uh, animal that would not be accepted on the altar of sacrifice. There's a a blemish, an imperfection there. Or someone who is given over to sensuality or other passions. Verse 3 reiterates that same idea. We have become corrupt. There's a moral corruption in our very beings. How are we corrupt? Well, we speak of the faculties of the soul here, the mind and the The affections and the will, what we know, what we love, what we choose, all of those have been disjointed and now pointed towards evil, pointed towards sin. So our minds have been corrupted. Isaiah 5 says this, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" This is something that we all fall prey to at times. When we hear that from Isaiah 5, we're thinking mostly about people in society who have accepted particular sins that historically would would not have been accepted. And we see society sort of change around us, around the moral and uh, sexual revolution, for instance. But that verse in Isaiah 5, we all do that. We all rationalize sin and we call evil good when we do it, when we spurn God's law and when we go a different direction. Thomas Watson goes on to say, "...the mind is darkened. We know little of God. Ever since Adam ate of the tree of knowledge and his eyes were opened, we lost our sight." And the very opposite happens, right? "...besides ignorance in the mind, there is error and mistake. We do not judge rightly of things." Besides this, there is much pride, many fleshly reasonings. Our mind has been corrupted. Before the fall, Adam's knowledge of God was not complete, but it was righteous and it was good. Our hearts have been corrupted. That which we love, that which we treasure, has been tilted towards sinfulness. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 9, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Watson speaks of the corruption of the affections this way. He says, the affections are a lesser hell. In the hearts are legions of lusts, infidelity, hypocrisy, sinful, uh, sinful tendencies. It boils as the sea with passion and Revenge, That which is in our hearts, that which often is unseen, and we're often glad that it is unseen. Who we are, what we treasure, what we cherish, has been tilted towards sinfulness. It has been corrupted. It is filled with sin. Not only our minds, not only our affections, but also our will. We have an enmity against God. We have a a pleasure in doing that which is our our own standard of righteousness. We often refuse to bend to God. And there, of course, we understand that there is no, no freedom of the will because we are at times powerless to say no to sin and to corruption. Not only are we corrupted, so Adam's sin is imputed to us, Uh, personally and internally, we are corrupted, our mind, our affections, and our wills. But then also there is the outward evidence that each of us know is true in our lives, that we have committed sin, many sin, sins without number, things that we know and things that we don't even realize or remember that we have done. Expanding upon Psalm 14, Paul in Romans chapter 3 makes this connection To say that all people are sinful before God. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. He says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their speaking is infested with sin. The venom, of, the venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. Not just some, not just most. Not just all but a few. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jeremiah 9, verse 5. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. We weary ourselves with the sin and the imperfection that we have within us. The result is that we don't even realize how sinful we are. We don't even understand. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know me. We need God to search our hearts because we often fail to recognize and to realize how sinful we are. Peter would have thought you were crazy to suggest to him, even just hours before, that he was going to deny Jesus three times. David, the same thing, right before he commits adultery with Bathsheba, a man after God's own heart, the anointed one of God, who had slayed Goliath. Tell him everything's your whole life is going to be in pieces, in days. He would have never would have believed you. Noah, a righteous man, the one who found favor with God, and of course the. The shameful drunkenness that happens right after the flood takes place. Job and his, his own righteousness and yet at various points in the book of Job where he's coming up right up to and possibly actually cursing God in some ways. There are many parts of the book of Job where you see that the anger creeping up within him and within the way that he speaks. Watson says this, If God leaves a man to himself, how suddenly and scandalously... May original sin break forth in the holiest man on earth. And so the lesson from this to know, to realize, to see the depths of our sinfulness. Don't underestimate sin. Do not underestimate it. Do do not fail to see how it can ruin you. How it can do its work in you. How powerful it can be to twist you around a lie and to make you believe a lie and to make you live according to that lie. It is a powerful force. Do not underestimate it. And at the same time, that causes us to treasure our redemption in Christ, to see how salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ and how valuable, how wonderful, how matchless it is and how it is something to cling to and to be thankful for each and every day. Day. We also read in the Catechism about the, the misery that, uh, that issues forth from all of this. And there in the Catechism, it's basically mostly talking about the experience of the unconverted. So, what, what are the, the miseries of this life that are especially experienced by those who do not know Christ, who do not know the Lord? Well, they're called, they're said to be under the power of Satan. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. They are under the power of the devil who blinds people with ignorance, who reigns over their will and attempts to lead them into sin. This is why it's such a key point that in Christ, we're not just removed from sin's guilt. We are taken away out of the reign of sin's power. Sin no longer reigns over us. That's a key point for us to see and to know. Uh, the, The devil and his many forces are still trying to lead God's people into sin, but he does not reign over us. He is not Lord over us. Also, another misery of this life, for those who do not know Christ, is that they are heirs of God's wrath. To live this life as as an heir of wrath, to live this life uh, on the precipice of of an awful experience of eternity. There's an old um, moral parable. Dionysius the king was, uh, was a tyrant, and uh, hated by many and he knew that and he knew that there were were many that were going to be jockeying to take him out and to dethrone him and so he was known to 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 be uh, obsessed with trying to keep track of everyone in his life and know where everything was so that he would not be taken out he felt like he was always an inch away from his life and so this man uh, Damocles comes into his, his court and he says uh, your life must be so great as the king you have all these things to enjoy and all the power is yours and, and all of these uh, things in life that you have it's you must feel so lucky. Dionysius wanted to teach him a lesson so he brought Damocles to a, a banqueting table and sat him there and set everything before him a great feast and, and all these these pleasures that a king can have and can enjoy but above him He hung a razor-sharp sword, and he hung it using just one strand of horse's hair. And what he wanted this man to see is that, yes, there were all of these advantages of a king's life, but every single moment you felt like you could lose your life. And that man understood at that point and said he didn't want to continue uh, with all of those things that he had been given. Thomas Watson is reflecting upon all of this as he's going through the, the catechism and he says this, So the sword of God's wrath and curse hangs every moment over a sinner's head. We read of a flying roll written with curses in Zechariah 5. A roll written with curses goes out against every person that lives and dies in sin. God's curse blasts wherever it comes There is a curse on the sinner's name, a curse on his soul, a curse on his estate and posterity, a curse on the ordinances. Sad, if all a man eats should turn to poison, yet the sinner eats and drinks his own damnation at God's table. Thus it is before conversion. Those who know not Christ, they live their life on the precipice of the worst possible results in eternity. Also, we subjected... To all of the miseries of this life, this life's many challenges, this life's uh, many trials, the sicknesses that are brought into the world, all the sufferings of this world, all of that is the result of sin and the fall. Even pagan philosophers have known and understood that this life is filled with misery and ultimately it cannot provide any ultimate rest. And so you may say, well, Christians have that too. We have, we have trials in this life too. We still have to go through the crucible of death and experience all the things in this life that bring sadness our way. That's true. But Christ sanctifies all of our sufferings. Only in Jesus Christ is your suffering given meaning. That's the only way that sickness or sadness... Or strife is made to mean anything because in Christ, God uses those things to prepare us for eternity and to make us experience the weight of glory that will be ours forever. For those who do not know Christ, the miseries of this life, it becomes madness, it becomes all vanity, it becomes absurdity. There is nothing that it produces in them for eternity. But in Christ, our sufferings are sanctified and made to mean something. And then, of course, bringing us to that final realization, not only the miseries of this life, not only being heirs of God's wrath and curse, not only under the power of the evil one, but those who live this life without Christ, without repenting of their sin and believing the gospel, without being made alive in him, they are ultimately brought to the reality of hell. Eternity in hell. One theologian says that one glimpse of hell fire is enough to make the most wicked sinner to turn Christian, nay, to live like a hermit, a most strict, mortified life. What is all other fire to this but painted fire? To bear it will be intolerable, to avoid it will be impossible, and these hell hell torments are forever. They have no end put to them. It causes us to say these these terrible things we we don't like thinking about and are very difficult uh, to focus on for any extended period of time. Are we that bad? And is God just? And is God still good to be a judge over all the earth and ultimately to send sinners to eternal condemnation? As we look out on the world, if we are honest with ourselves, what we see is the depravity of man. Before the flood, God looked down and he saw that the hearts of man were continuously, all the time, turned towards evil. We see the evil within our own hearts, our own sinfulness. We see the sinfulness of others who are close to us. We, we hear uh, horrifying stories throughout the world all of the time about the sinfulness of man. Malcolm Muggeridge said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. We're not willing, we're not ready as a human race oftentimes to admit that we are sinners, terrible, horrible sinners. But we are. We cannot deny that it is true. And if none of that is Convincing to us. The one place that we have to look, the one place that we have to turn to realize the reality of our sinfulness is Jesus Christ Himself. Because if we are not as bad as Scripture makes us out to be, then it makes God to be a fool who would send His own Son to be a sacrifice for sin. We needed Jesus to wash our sins away. That's how seriously God was about dealing with our sin. And if that was not needed, then it makes God to be a fool. To send his son, his only son, his beloved son, his perfect son, his glorious son. To wash away our sin. But he did and that tells us all we need to know about the reality of our sin. The seriousness of our sin and the depth of sin our sin. And so finally that brings us to once again how much we are to treasure our redemption. But how glorious it is that Jesus Christ was born without or apart from ordinary generation. You remember that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism all those who descend from Adam by ordinary generation are given this corruption. They lose their communion with God. They're under, the wrath, uh, they're under God's wrath and curse. They are subject to the miseries of this life, the pains of hell forever. Jesus was not born by ordinary generation. And we thought about that this morning. In the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, there's that little jog right when we get to Joseph. He did not beget Jesus. He was married to Mary from whom Jesus came. Because he did have a human mother, but he had no human father. Born without corruption, born without being fallen, born without inheriting this sinfulness of Adam. Not only was he born pure and born as a God-man, but he lived his whole life as righteous. Jesus is the only one ultimately with a leg to stand on before God. When we see our sinfulness, we realize that we need His righteousness. We see our sinfulness, we realize that we need His atoning blood and the cleansing that He gives to us. Israel put to the test in the wilderness. They grumble, complain, they fail time and time and time again. Jesus in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, stands to the test to show us that this was a man who came to be righteous, who came to be perfect, to stand the test of God's law. He stands firm. And he, being the only one with a leg to stand on in terms of righteousness, he comes to this world, the only righteous man who ever lives, and we killed him. We killed him. And left to ourselves, one pastor says, if left to ourselves, we would do it again. That's how sinful we are. We so hate righteousness and we so can't stand to be around holiness that we will do anything to get it away left to ourselves outside of the grace of God. So all of this causes us to see the glory of Jesus Christ and our redemption. It causes us to run to the Savior, to run away from ourselves because yes, we are that bad. Yes, we are that corrupt. Our, our sins are not just things that are this sort of a little bit weird or a little bit off. We are at enmity with God in and of ourselves, and we need to be cleansed. And in Christ, we are. We have to know our misery, because without knowing something of the depth of our misery, the gospel is not nearly as glorious If we don't know our misery, we become proud. To bring us back to that quote from Pascal at the beginning, the man who knows God but does not know his own misery becomes proud. The man who knows his own misery but does not know God ends in despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes the middle course because in him we find both God and our own misery. Is look to Christ, you will see God, you will see our Savior. You will see righteousness, you will see holiness, but you will see our misery. Because why else did he have to come? Why else did he have to die on the cross? Why else did he have to subject himself to all of the things that we have here, and yet remain without sin? Jesus Christ is therefore a God whom we approach without pride, and before whom we humble ourselves without despair that causes us then to abound in true thanksgiving. To always be thankful. We have this savior. We have a perfect righteousness. We have an atoning blood. And we always can live in him. And stand in him. And abide in him. Be cleansed. One person says this. Do not complain that you do not have what you desire. And oftentimes in this world things aren't going to go our way. Do not complain that you do not have what you desire. Thank God that you do not have what you deserve. So what do we deserve? The wrath and the curse of God. Eternity apart from him. But in Christ we're given the blessings of his kingdom. So do not complain that you do not have what you desire. Thank God that you do not have what you deserve. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ, that in him we are made whole, made new. We look forward to that day when... Our sinfulness will be fully and finally done away with. We long for that day because it, sin continues to plague us. It does not reign over us, but it remains in us. So help us to know how serious it is, to not take it lightly, to do battle against it each and every day by the, by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name, the ability to do that. Amen.